This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Luke Russell. Luke is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Sydney. His research focuses in moral philosophy, where he pursues questions about virtue and vice, forgiveness, and evil. His recent book brings these concerns together. It is titled Being Evil, and it's just been published by Oxford University Press. Now, evil is among our everyday moral concepts. In fact, it's common to hear politicians and others condemn certain acts, purposes, people, or even populations as evil. But what does it mean to call something evil? Is evil simply the exceedingly bad or wrong? Is evil rather a distinctive kind of wrongness or badness? Is it a kind of wrongness at all? Maybe it's morally of its own kind. Are there acts that are evil regardless of the motives of those who commit them? Or is it that people are the things that fundamentally are evil or not? It takes only a few simple questions like the ones above to complicate our familiar conception of evil. And that's partly the point of Luke Russell's fascinating book. In it, he takes the reader step by step through a philosophical analysis of the concept of evil. Along the way, he develops and defends his own view of what evil is all about. As usual, there's a lot to talk about. But we will also begin, as we usually do, with our guest, the author. Hi, Luke. Hi, Bob. Thanks very much for inviting me to be on the show. No problem at all. Thank you for the book. Um, You know, we usually start these um, interviews uh, with a little bit about the author. So um, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So I, as you said, I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Sydney. Um, and I teach ethics and critical thinking here. Um, and I, my, I guess my, um, my approach to these philosophical questions is to um, try and make sense of and bring some clarity to ordinary, everyday moral discussions that seem a bit confused and contentious. Uh, and that's certainly the case with discussion of evil. It sure does. Um, can I ask, if you don't mind, like, um, sort of, 
some people, let me put it this way, um, you know, there's a there's a um, a kind of methodological dispute, I suppose, among sort of value theorists in general about um, where our philosophical reflections ought to begin. Some think that they ought to begin with um, the kinds of uh, ideas or concepts that we reach for when things are going good, <laughs> like justice. <laughs> and then there are those who think, no, that the really interesting philosophical starting points are um, looking at places where things are going badly or things are falling apart or things are deteriorating. Um uh, in thinking about evil, now you've you've written a book about evil. You've edited a book about evil. Is there some methodological commitment to thinking, um, you know, in the in, well, in a way that sometimes is called in the you know, thinking of the non thinking in the non ideal circumstances? Sure. So, with uh, my approach to evil, um, was not so much motivated by you know a, a fascination with failure with with the extreme but more motivated by what struck me as a, a very unusual situation that occurred after the September 11 terrorist attacks in the United States when George W. Bush uh, condemned the terrorists as evil and said what they did was evil and declared that certain nations constituted an axis of evil. And this is a, a very public announcement by a political figure uh, that drew a lot of conflicting responses. Um, so one way of responding to what G.W. Bush said then was to say, well, isn't that kind of ridiculous and old-fashioned um, and exaggerated and misleading and perhaps even a dangerous way to think about what's happened? Um, whereas there are others who applauded his response and said this is exactly the kind of language that we need and exactly the kind of conceptual tool that we need to respond to that kind of extreme wrongdoing. And so for me it wasn't, you know, I'm not the kind of person who <laughs> loves reading about serial killers or political atrocities or things like that, um, but that political disagreement uh, the, the disagreement about how which moral language we should use and how we should think clearly about that kind of event is what drew me into this question. Uh, and I noticed that there are people who think in response to that kind of terrorist attack that we should um, just withhold moral judgment altogether. There are people who think one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, so to speak. Uh, but the more interesting response for me was from people who do want to make firm moral judgments about what happened in a case like that, and yet are very sceptical of the language of evil and the concept of evil, who think, I, I do care about morality and I do want to morally condemn um, things that have happened, and yet there's something about talk of evil which makes me step back and say, well, I'm not going to go there. So that was what drew me into this question in the first place. That's very interesting. You know, in the States, there was, um, you know, in the days and weeks um, uh, after 9-11, um, you know, the president um, 
I guess now that you're mentioning, I guess in a kind of sort of indirect response to some of the critics that you're thinking of, you know, said things like we will call evil by its name, <laughs> you know, that uh, he would he would call the terrorists um, uh, or the, 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 the people who, uh, 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 you know, drove planes into those buildings terrorists and said that they're evil and then would add and we will call evil by its name. So I suppose that that was a, a kind of rebuff to those who thought that the the register of the moral condemnation ought not be uh, evil. Because I suppose um, uh, at the time people thought that evil was um, an overtly theological or religious moral category. And maybe that was the uh, motive for saying it should be avoided. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I think a lot of people responded to G.W. Bush's uh, claim with a kind of um, a, the assumption that he was buying into a theological worldview um, that is highly contentious, that a lot of people reject. Um, and the, I have encountered this a lot in talking about evil with people outside of academia. Um, a lot of people say, well, evil is a religious concept. Uh, and if you ha- have a religious worldview, then, you know, that's fine. But in a secular realm, in a secular political realm, for example, uh, the concept of evil doesn't really belong. And you can draw analogies between evil here and some other moral concepts, uh, like the concept of sin. Now, arguably, there's a difference between saying an action is sinful and saying that it's morally wrong. Um, If you are a religious believer who thinks God has issued commands to us and violation of those commands count as sins, then, you know, go for it. You can use the concept of sin wholeheartedly there. But if you're talking with an audience, many of whom don't believe in God, you might think your your talk about sinfulness is is going to um, fail to connect with that audience in the right way. You might be making presuppositions that your audience don't accept. And some people want to bundle the category of evil in with the category of sin. They think that's an exclusively religious moral concept. And that's one reason why many people are skeptical of it. Uh, They might think evil doesn't exist, or they might think talk about evil is inappropriate when we're responding to the serious and real um, extreme moral violations that confront us. Good. So that... Oh, I'm sorry, please okay. continue. I, I was just going to say, you know, that's a nice segue into, um, you know, the, the book opens up with this, you know, what you call the philosophical puzzle of evil. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Can you spell that out a bit more? Yeah, so the, the puzzle of evil, as I see it, is not what's going on in a, a different area of philosophy where we have something called the problem of evil. So um, philosophical listeners will probably be familiar with this. The problem of evil is a problem that arises if you are a theist, if you think that there is an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God who created the universe. And the problem is how do we make sense of the fact that there seems to be bad things like undeserved suffering in the world if the world was created by that kind of God? who could have made any world. So you can frame this uh, question as why didn't God just make heaven, just a place of perfect happiness 
um, without any pain and suffering. So because the word evil, if we go back in time, was regularly used just as a synonym for bad, the problem of evil could equally be described as the problem of bad. Why are there bad things in the world if the world was created by that kind of God? So the things that are included in the list of evils in the context of discussion of the problem of evil include things like, you know, animals killing each other and dying in painful ways. It includes things like cancer and the horrible suffering that people go through when they're dying from cancer. It includes things like toothaches. Now, this when you see the word evil being used as labels for toothaches, you think, hang on, something, something a little strange is going on here. Because in the context of contemporary moral debate, where you, for example, have someone saying what those terrorists did wasn't just wrong, it was evil. It seems that the word evil is being used to pick out a different concept, not merely to pick out the concept of bad. So it would seem uh, to be really miscategorizing things if you called a toothache evil, right, when you are in uh, the context of contemporary moral debate. So the problem of evil, the theological problem of evil, is, uh, I think, uh, an area of philosophy where you have an archaic use of a word that has persisted through into contemporary times and it feels a little bit odd. Um, so that's not what's going on, I think, in contemporary debates about evil, the kind of debates that occurred after September 11, the kind of debates that occur when we try and evaluate, make sense of the actions performed by psychopaths or by serial killers. Um, so one of the key philosophical tasks in zeroing in on the puzzle of evil is to distinguish this contemporary use of the word evil to pick out that kind of moral extremity, distinguish that from the earlier use of evil where evil is just a synonym for the word bad and there can be evils that are minor there can be evils that are trivial. There can be evils that have no moral content. They're just bad things. So the puzzle of evil, which I engage with in this book, is focused on moral extremity. And the puzzle is, well, if we've got a group of people who are intelligent, reflective people who are responding to some horrific incidents by using the word evil, and yet there's another group of intelligent, reflective people who are balking at that, who are saying, no, evil is the wrong category here, the wrong kind of concept to use. The puzzle of evil is, well, what is the content of that concept? You can phrase this as, what's the difference between saying, well, you know, what he did was wrong, but what this guy did was evil? Or if we cast this in the mode of talking about persons rather than actions, we might say, well, what's the difference between saying he's a bad guy, but that guy is evil? So this is the philosophical challenge that I set myself in thinking about evil. What, how can we develop a philosophical account of evil that makes sense of what's going on in those contemporary disputes? 
And also, how can we develop a philosophical account of evil that is a secular account that doesn't rely on particular religious preconceptions, that doesn't rely on buying into a supernaturalist metaphysics? How can we try and make sense of the fact that there are plenty of atheists who use the language of evil in condemning extreme wrongdoing and who think that there are some evil people in the world. So that's the puzzle of evil. Fantastic. And so, you know, a lot of the book then is aimed at, um, you know, just as you characterize it, sort of let's look at certain, and I would say that at all points, certain, at least initially, intuitive ways of trying to answer that question right? what what is the what is the concept that's being appealed to uh, uh, even if we um, even if we already think that whatever evil is it's a kind of extreme badness or wrongness so okay well what are the what are the contours of the concept so um, you know you begin with um, looking at accounts that try to analyze evil, by way of our responses. So these are, you know, what the philosophers uh, listening to us would recognize as the response dependent, <laughs> response dependent kinds of views. Um, now you think that these sort of views or this approach to getting a sort of handle on the concept of evil are unpersuasive. And you spot a lot, you spend a lot of time unpacking various attempts um, and particularly the kinds of attempts that associate evil with a particular kind of horror or a particular kind of sort of a response that uh, is, is, is the response of being horrified. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how those accounts work and why you find them um, unpersuasive? Yeah, so these uh, kind of accounts of evil have been defended by philosophers such as Steve DeWeitzer at Manchester, um, and they certainly are appealing in some respects. So I don't think these are you know, ridiculously bad accounts of the concept of evil, um, but I think they're not as useful as the alternatives. So these, um, these accounts of evil suggest that um, the language of evil is a kind of expressive language and someone who says that action was evil could be closely compared to someone who says, for example, wow, that's disgusting or that's horrific or that's incomprehensible. Right, so these are expressive concepts which are aimed to convey a certain kind of reaction. Um, and this certainly is a domain where a lot of us have got a particular kind of reaction to the target, if you like. So if we're thinking about, say, a terrorist action, or if we're thinking about uh, the horrific crimes committed by a serial killer, or if we're thinking about torture that's being carried out in the military where captives are being you know strung up and electrocuted and so on when we confront examples like this many of us feel a kind of moral revulsion some philosophers might use the language of moral disgust um, many philosophers who write about this use the language of horror so we are horrified when we confront this kind of wrongdoing and this, the task of, you know, giving a, an account of the concept of evil requires us to distinguish evil from ordinary wrongdoing. Um, and this 
horror response is a nice candidate that might allow us to do that because it's not the case that we feel that kind of horror or deep moral disgust towards all kinds of wrongdoing. There are plenty of examples of ordinary, everyday wrongs which we feel negative about and which we might be, you know, might make us feel very disappointed in the perpetrator, um, which might make us feel angry and resentful towards the perpetrator. And yet it's only a subset of the wrong actions that prompt us to feel this kind of moral horror. So this is why philosophers like Steve Deweitzer uh, pick on this as a potential uh, distinguishing feature between evil and ordinary wrongdoing. Um, so this is, I think, a promising account because many of us do feel those kind of reactions to the actions in question. Uh, now, as you've said already, ultimately I think this is not the right way to go for developing a philosophical account of evil. And to try and summarise my argument here, the problem is that while it's true that many of us feel horror towards these kind of extreme wrongs, the direction of explanation here is that we ought to feel horrified by wrongs that have a certain kind of moral extremity to them. And it's the moral extremity that explains the appropriateness of our reaction and that we are, it's the moral extremity, I think, that we're trying to refer to, describe or pick out when we're using the concept of evil. We're not just using the language of evil as a purely expressive language. Uh, we're trying to pick out a moral property. So here are a couple of reasons for thinking that's true. One would be... A familiar example from fiction, we see this in movies regularly and we, we see it in comedies as well. So if you think about the Austin Powers films, the character of Dr. Evil is um, familiar to many of the people listening to this, I'm sure. Now, Dr. Evil is someone who wants to do what's evil and describes what he's doing as evil. And he is not horrified by what he's doing. So if the concept of evil were just a kind of expressive concept, expressing moral horror and disgust, then that wouldn't really make sense that we could have a character who is using the language of evil and the concept of evil and yet failing to express that kind of disgust. Now, this gets complicated because Dr. Evil is a comic character, right? He's meant to be funny and ridiculous. So it's open to defenders of this kind of expressive account to say uh, what's going on here is we've got someone who is failing to use the concept of evil and it's a ridiculous situation, someone who's using the language, the word evil, but failing to really use the concept. But things get a bit more complicated here when we start to look at real-life examples. And some examples of serial killers uh, are ones in which the, the killer, the perpetrator of these horrible wrongs, describes what he's doing as evil and describes himself as an evil person and yet endorses what he's doing. He's not expressing horror or disgust at what he's doing. And he's saying, what I'm doing, what I'm doing is evil, 
I know a lot of you are horrified and terrified by what's happening, but I'm loving it. Right? So if this is the case, that gives us a reason to think perhaps the language of evil is not just expressive language, but rather is, is picking out a moral property. And people who have no positive commitment to morality, including some psychopaths, can use the concept of evil and can do so without expressing any condemnation of what they're calling evil. So this is a, some listeners will be familiar with discussion of the possibility of an amoralist who uses moral concepts um, and yet has no kind of motivational or expressive connection in the use of those concepts. So this kind of example of Dr. Evil or contemporary serial killers um, harks back to a very influential, much earlier use of the concept of evil. And here we need to be careful because we're going a long way back in time. And uh, as I've said already, meaning of the word evil has shifted over time. But we get a fascinating example in uh, John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, with the, the character of Satan in that poem, who explicitly seeks to do evil under that description. And again, this is something that wouldn't really make sense if evil were just an expressive concept. When in Paradise Lost, Satan says, evil be thou my good, and it's, it is puzzling to try and figure out how we ought to interpret that. Uh, but I think what's going on is here we have a character who is using a concept of evil and the language of evil to pick out a moral property while simultaneously wholeheartedly rejecting morality. Um, so there are some reasons for thinking that talk about evil is not just like expressions of disgust. Right? Rather, talk about evil is an attempt to latch onto, pick out a moral property, which most of us, given our commitment to morality, will strongly condemn. Most of us will feel horrified by it. And yet the concept of evil is not a mere expression of that horror. Rather, it's an attempt. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Fabulous. And so that's another nice segue, um, the, the Satan character and Dante, I mean, um, because then, you you know, turning away from the response dependence um, uh, kind of analyses, um, you look at views that try to identify evil with a kind of um, psychological um, hallmark or, uh, or, or signature. Um, uh, you're looking specifically at views that hold that uh, evil acts are marked by a kind of malicious, sadistic, um, or in the case of uh, Dante Satan, morally defiant <laughs> uh, disposition or motive or um, drive. Um, I have to confess that th th this strikes me as a very promising kind of view. Um, so explain why, why you think it's lacking. Yeah, so this, again, is a view that is 
uh, aimed at distinguishing the ordinary wrongs, the everyday wrongs from the evil. Uh, so what we're looking for is a feature that evils, evil actions possess that is lacked by everyday wrongdoing. And there are plenty of moral concepts that we've got which carve out a subset of actions in virtue of the motives that lie behind those actions. So, for example, if we think about compassionate action, that is action that is motivated by a certain kind of feeling that is accompanied by certain kinds of judgments, perhaps, right? So com- not all um, beneficial actions are compassionate actions. Compassionate actions are those which have got a certain kind of motivational character behind them. Um, and this is true for, uh, if we're thinking in the negative domain in morality, uh, this is true for malicious actions. Right? Malicious actions are ones that are motivated in a certain kind of way. So you can see why quite a few philosophers have reached in this direction when they're trying to distinguish the ordinary wrongs from evil actions. They think there's a kind of psychological hallmark that would distinguish evils from ordinary wrongs. So far, so good. I think this is definitely a strategy that's worth exploring. But here's where things get a little difficult. When it comes to something like compassion, there's not huge disagreement as to which are the relevant motives or the relevant moral emotions that lie behind a compassionate action. We're all roughly in the same ballpark when it comes to distinguishing the compassionate from the non-compassionate actions. And this is true, I think, for many of these psychologically thick moral concepts. There's a pretty, uh, pretty widely shared view as to what distinguishes that kind of action from the rest. And yet when it comes to evil, if we want to distinguish evil from ordinary wrongdoing by pointing to a distinctive psychological feature possessed by evil actions but not possessed by ordinary wrongs, there's massive disagreement as to what this psychological feature might be. And one of the things that I do in this section of the book is work through the main alternatives that have been endorsed by philosophers who take this approach. So the first is to say, well, maybe the difference between evil actions and ordinary wrongs is that evil actions are performed out of malice. Now, obviously, we need a definition of malice here in order to make progress. Malice might be defined as ill will, uh, wanting what's bad for the recipient of the action. Um, Often the language of malice overlaps significantly with uh, descriptions of wrongdoing as gratuitous. So we might think some wrongs are motivated purely instrumentally. So the perpetrator of that wrong, for example, say someone steals a car, the perpetrator of that wrong is not aiming to hurt or to harm the victim of that crime. The person who steals the car is just wanting to get the car. And so that's an instrumental instrumentally motivated wrong action. And we can contrast that with maliciously motivated wrong actions. And these are ones where the perpetrator of the wrong does want to hurt or harm the victim of the wrong. 
and not merely as a means to securing some other end. You might think the hurting or the harming is part of the point of the action. And so this, I think, is the best way to understand malice as a potential psychological hallmark of evil. And the problem, I think, with this as a definition of evil action is that there are plenty of actions that are morally wrong and that are motivated out of malice that fall well short of being evil. So here I'm falling back on a kind of rough, intuitive conception of which actions would plausibly count as evil. And I think there are minor wrongs which are motivated by malice, but which are so trivial. They're morally wrong. They shouldn't be performed. They ought to be condemned. But nonetheless, they're relatively insignificant in the overall scheme of things. They're so trivial that they don't really deserve the label of evil. So there are malicious but trivial wrongs. And if you share my conception of evil such that evil is an extreme moral concept, it picks out a kind of moral extremity, then we need to do more than say, well, evil actions are not just wrong, but they're malicious wrongs. Um, so that's, that's one way we could go, thinking about malice as a potential hallmark of evil. An alternative psychological hallmark of evil is sadistic pleasure in the wrong. Um, and this is something that um, plenty of people think is a distinctive feature of evil actions. And we see this again in fiction. Right? If you're uh, presenting, it, say, a character on screen and you want your audience to think that that character's evil, uh, the, the standard kind of trope for doing this is make the character cackle with glee while contemplating wrongdoing or while contemplating someone else's suffering. Okay, so there are plenty of examples of this. Uh, we get the, the Wicked Witch of the West, we get the mm-hmm. Emperor in Star Wars, right? the, and we get Mr. Burns in The Simpsons. And all of these characters rub their hands together with glee and cackle as they're contemplating harming others. So there's a kind of stereotype here that some philosophers think gets at the heart of the distinction between ordinary wrongs and evils. It's that um, evil actions are ones that are not only wrong but are pleasurable in their wrongness to the perpetrator. Um, and this, again, harks back to some earlier discussions about morality. So Augustine, in his Confessions, describes um, stealing, right, climbing into an orchard and stealing pears. Um, and this is he's talking about his earlier sinful days that he's repented from. <laughs> uh, but in this example, and I think this is a, a delightfully old-fashioned example of wrongdoing, Right, climbing into an orchard and stealing some pears. <laughs> That's not what naughty kids are doing these days. But Augustine describes his motives in doing this, and he says that he did it not because he wanted the pears, but because he was delighting in the wrongness of the act. And so this kind of pleasure taken in wrongdoing, pleasure taken in harming, is an interesting candidate for the psychological hallmark of evil. Now, again, um, there are going to be objections to this kind of account. One is the kind of objection that I already raised in response to malice as a candidate for the hallmark of evil. 
right? It's that there can be trivial, minor wrongdoing that is sadistically pleasurable to the wrongdoer. Um, and it doesn't seem to be morally significant enough or sufficiently morally grave to count as evil action. But here's the other kind of objection to psychological hallmark accounts of evil. It seems that there are some moral wrongs that are really extreme, that deserve our strongest moral condemnation, that do not feature this allegedly distinctive motive of evil. So let's focus on sadistic pleasure. There are some wrong actions, for example, actions that are performed as part of genocide during war. And there are examples of these kind of descriptions of these kind of actions that we see in response to the Holocaust and some of the perpetrators of atrocities in the Holocaust. And not every perpetrator of these atrocities felt sadistic pleasure in performing these actions. There's a a famous speech by Himmler in which he encourages the German soldiers who are carrying out, you know, who are machine-gunning Jews in the, um, the march eastward to steal themselves, to overcome their sense of revulsion and their sense of discomfort in performing this difficult work. Now, we look at this and say, these people are performing moral atrocities and their actions deserve our strongest moral condemnation. Yet, it's very plausible that a good proportion of those perpetrators were not taking sadistic pleasure in what they were doing. So Himmler describes this as you need to do your duty, even when it's difficult to do that. You need to overcome your emotional discomfort in order to perform these actions. Now, one response to that would be to say, okay, so those kind of perpetrators who took no pleasure but perhaps just took grim satisfaction in murdering those innocent victims, those perpetrators perhaps were not performing evil actions because they didn't take any pleasure in what they were doing. But to some of us, that seems misguided. We think we want the category of evil action to be applicable in response to extreme wrongdoing, which was not sadistically motivated. Um, So you see how we've got here uh, the testing of these philosophical accounts of evil action by a search for counterexamples. So if a philosopher says, ah, evil actions are wrongs that are also sadistically pleasurable, what I think we ought to do is look for examples. Can we find cases of a sadistically pleasurable wrong that doesn't seem to be evil. And second step of the process, can we find examples of things that really do strike us as evil actions that were not, in fact, pleasurable to their perpetrators? Please, I was, I was going to ask um, about the, the sort of the, the, the next step um, where the account, uh, accounts are offered where one tries to define evil by way of the nature of the harms that are caused by evil actions. Can you tell us about those views? Yeah, so we might say, okay, there's no kind of distinctive psychological hallmark of evil after all. And 
that is the view actually that Hannah Arendt ultimately came to hold. Her discussion of the banality of evil, when I think when you read this carefully and try and understand what's going on, Arendt is not always transparent. But when you (laughs) understand what Arendt is contrasting her view to, I think we see Arendt is ultimately concluding that evil actions can come from a really broad range of motives. There's not a kind of distinctive character or set of emotions or set of motives that lie behind evil actions. Some people perhaps perform evil out of uh, sadistic desire to um, inflict maximum suffering on their victims. Some people perform evil actions because they're trying to do their jobs and they think that they mistakenly think that what they're doing is their duty. Um, So this is a a kind of a way to reject that psychological hallmark approach to defining evil and say, well, we need to look elsewhere. What else could count as a distinguishing mark between ordinary wrongs and evil actions? So instead of looking at the motives of the perpetrators, we might look at the kind of harm that is inflicted by an evil action. And Here, there are plenty of examples of distinctions between kinds of harm. Um, So pain is obviously one kind of harm, um, but we might distinguish pains from um, significant destruction of property. It's a different kind of harm. From uh, extreme humiliation, a different kind of harm. Uh, Violation of what is taken to be sacred. Okay, so we've got a range of different harms and within the category of what we might call physical harms that we inflict on other human beings, again, we've got different categories. So we've got murder as one category, we've got torture as another and so on. So if you think, okay, the difference between ordinary wrongs and evil actions must be something in the nature of the the kind of harm that is inflicted in evils, uh, you run into similar kinds of problems. So the the problem is that different philosophers are going to say, well, (laughs) this is the distinctive kind of harm, Um, and others will say, no, no, that's not what's going on. Um, There's a a broad range of harms that can be inflicted in evil actions. So, for example, suppose we wanted to say, ah, the distinctive kind of harm that marks out evil is murder. So uh, an evil action, say, is a wrong action that's also a murder. Now, (laughs) this is a view that immediately falls apart when you put it under scrutiny. There might be some actions that count as murders but don't seem sufficiently extreme to be described as evil. And there are many actions that strike a lot of us as being morally sufficiently extreme to count as evil that are not murders. And here we can think, for example, of torture. So if we think of torture in a military setting, for example, or if we think of um, people who, you know, uh, capture victims, sometimes people do this to their family members, as Joseph Fritzl did in Austria. They they lock someone up in secret and and torture them um, for years. So... If that kind of action strikes you as evil, then you have to reject the idea that evil is marked out from ordinary wrongs by 
necessarily involving murder. Um, so there are, you see the problem that we're getting into. There seem to be a broad range of harms that are inflicted in extreme wrongs. And an attempt to say evil is distinguished from ordinary wrongdoing in virtue of the type of harm that is inflicted is going to be very difficult to defend. So, and I suppose, uh, isn't there also um, uh, another kind of counterexample where you're, you're worried about um, uh, or you raise the possibility that um, there, the act of watching somebody else inflict great kinds of harm, <laughs> that could be evil, even if the, the watching or the, the vicariously, you know, sort of looking on uh, uh, one person harming another in some extreme way, that that can be evil, even if itself is not uh, inflicting any harm on anybody. That's right, Bob. So um, one of the, the candidate views for a concept of evil here is not to say it's a distinctive kind of harm that's inflicted. It's just evil actions are wrongs that inflict an extreme amount of harm. They could be of different kinds. Um, and this is um, a view that I think is more defensible. But we do run into that problem that you just mentioned there, that some evil actions might seem to be harmless and yet evil. And as you point out, someone who is a sadistic voyeur who inflicts no harm himself but who takes great pleasure in witnessing the extreme undeserved suffering of other people strikes many of us as doing something evil when he's there, you know, rubbing his hands together watching the extreme suffering of the victim. Um, there are also examples of harmless failed attempts to inflict massive damage. Um, which strikes some of us as being evil, even though they're actually harmless. So here we can think about failed terrorist attacks. Um, so the shoe bomber Richard Reed is a classic example of this. Uh, he was on a transatlantic flight trying to um, set his bomb that he'd, he'd built into his shoe alight. Um, and because it had been raining, the matches and the shoe were damp and it didn't, he didn't succeed. So he was trying to bring down an aeroplane full of innocent victims, right, which many of us would think is a sufficiently extreme wrong action to count as evil. And yet he didn't succeed in inflicting that harm on those victims. Right? So if you want to be able to say that there are evil actions which are harmless failed attempts, then you need to reject the view that evil is distinguished from ordinary wrongdoing in virtue of the amount of harm that's inflicted. Great. So uh, I think those examples, I, I think, are more persuasive than the example of the sadistic voyeur. I've got mm -hmm. mixed intuitions about sadistic voyeurism. I do think it's morally deplorable, um, but I don't think it is as morally bad as someone who is, you know, attempting or succeeding in inflicting on how, that amount of harm. Right. Great. So I, I want to make sure that we get into um, talking about the positive account. Um, so your final view, and I'm going to quote it, it's, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's got all of the, um, you know, it's, 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 it's philosophically virtuous in that it's got all of the right levers and cogs in it, I think. Um, so you say, and this is just quoting you, you call this your final view. You say, an action is evil if and only if it is a wrong that is extremely harmful for at least one individual victim 
where the wrongdoer is fully culpable for that harm in its extremity, or it is an action that is appropriately connected to an actual or possible extreme harm of this kind, and the agent is fully culpable for that action. Could you unpack? I mean, it, it's it, it, it's got lots of philosophical virtues. <laughs> um, could you unpack it a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. Non-philosophers hate definitions like this. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, as you point out, this is a definition that's designed to, um, you know, in a pretty fine-grained way, capture the right kind of examples that I think fit with our intuitive conception of evil action. Um, but it's not elegant by any means. It's uh, it's messy, this definition. So if I wanted to give a neater version, I would say extreme, I would say evil actions are extreme culpable wrongs. Um, and it's a certain kind of extremity that I'm trying to spell out in that definition. Um, so extreme culpable wrongs is the, the neat journalistic version. Uh, as you say, um, I think that I'm persuaded by some of the things that Hannah Arendt has said about evil and Claudia Card, another philosopher influenced by Arendt. Um, I'm persuaded by the idea that evil actions can come from a really broad range of motives and that we shouldn't be thinking, ah, the evildoer is someone with a particular psychological profile and if you don't have that profile, then it's impossible for you to do evil. I don't think... Uh, Evil actions can be performed by ordinary people and by extremely morally corrupt people. And I think what we're um, picking out with the category of evil is culpable moral extremity rather than a certain motivation profile. But I also think that we use the concept of evil correctly to condemn harmless failed attempts at inflicting massive amounts of wrong, uh, massive amounts of harm, and so I think the definition needs to be expanded to include that. And some of the other moves in that definition are aimed at dealing with questions of um, partial mitigation and the degree of moral responsibility that someone bears for an action. So you can think of my viewers saying evil actions are extreme culpable wrongs where we think the person really is morally responsible for what he or she did. And what he or she did was extreme, was morally grave. And then I'm giving a more detailed account of the kind of moral gravity that's relevant in this case. Yeah, and I should say, um, just to our, our listeners um, who heard me quote that passage and you know sort of thought, oh my goodness, what kind of book is this? <laughs> that um, <laughs> the prose is extremely readable and and all the rest. You we get this final view at a at a point in the argument where uh, where any reader, philosopher or not, will be well positioned uh, to um, understand exactly why it's got all of the ingredients that it has. I think this is this is the case, Bob, uh, in relation not just to the concept of evil, but to lots of the important moral concepts which we want to be able to grasp more clearly. Right? So definitions of things like um, free will or moral responsibility or blameworthiness, right? these are all really important concepts 
I mean, what I'm working on now is forgiveness, trying to build a defensible philosophical account of the nature of forgiveness. And this is, it's difficult to keep that kind of account neat um, because we've got, you know, a range of conflicting moral intuitions uh, and because these are concepts that are used in real-life moral situations. Um, and, you know, one, a different kind of approach would be to say, well, you know, so what about all of these, the moral intuitions that people have about particular examples? Let's just stipulate a definition or we'll come up with a, a neater definition um, and then try and impose it <laughs> or encourage its, its adoption in everyday moral discourse. And one of the challenges that I think that I set myself and that I think is, is part of doing this kind of philosophy well is taking seriously the folk moral discourse or the way that ordinary people talk about the concept in question. Um, because, say, you're thinking about evil or you're thinking about forgiveness, I think one of your tasks as a philosopher is to engage with and to make sense of all of the, you know, the massive amount of discussion that occurs outside of a philosophy seminar room that involves those concepts. Right, right. And um, like I say in, in, in the book, uh, in Being Evil, um, the reader is brought along um, uh, very expertly, I should say, into um, uh, some of the complexity that um, at first blush might not seem um, um, might not seem necessary. So um, that's one of the, the the book's virtues. But Luke, you've been really generous with your time, and I want to make sure that we get to talk about how the book uh, closes. Um, so um, your fifth chapter uh, is about evil persons, um, and you know, to turn uh, a famous Aristotelian inside around, uh, just as one swallow doesn't make a spring, um, it would seem that, and, and one good action doesn't make somebody virtuous. Similarly, uh, one evil act might not make one an evil person. Um, you propose what you call a fixed disposition account of what makes one an evil person. Can you tell us a bit about that analysis? Yeah, so I think that a lot of people who are, skeptical of the concept of evil and a lot of people who think that we just ought to drop that language in contemporary contemporary moral discourse are really strongly motivated by concerns about calling someone an evil person and some of them i think take this to be you know the primary use of that concept and they think because it's particularly dangerous to call someone an evil person we should just drop the language of evil. Um, but this, I think, is a mistake. And a lot of the philosophers who write about evil draw a distinction between evil action and evil person. And the typical way that this is phrased is to say that not every evildoer is an evil person. So here, an evildoer is just someone who has performed at least one evil action. And an evil person is something more than that. And I think this is one of the big challenges for philosophers like me who want to defend the concept of evil. Right? What are we going to say when we uh, about this step up from, you know, he's an evildoer, but he's an evil person? And 
is there a special reason to be cautious with the deployment of this concept of an evil person? Um, and I think that's the case. So what's going on here? Um, I think when you look at the way that a lot of ordinary people use the concept of evil person, they treat an evil person as a moral write-off. And by this, I mean when they call someone evil, they're trying to convey the fact that this person cannot be fixed and ought to be treated as someone who is dangerous, who perhaps ought to be destroyed or at least constrained, put in a position where he or she can't harm others. Uh, but the, if this person really is evil, then the thought of negotiating with this person or trying to educate this person is a, a dangerous mistake. So, for example, you see this when you have, for, say, some serial killers being described as evil, when in a political domain there is a claim made that um, perpetrators of some of these terrorist actions are evil people. Right? The, the signal here is don't think that we can reform this person. This person is beyond our reach. Um, so I think we ought to take that kind of implication seriously and build it into our conception of what it is to be an evil person. If someone's an evil person, then he or she is a moral write-off. And here, that allows us to make sense of the distinction between an evildoer and an evil person. So if we think about someone like Hannah Arendt, who believes that many of the atrocities committed in the Holocaust were evil actions, but were performed by psychologically ordinary people. Right? We might say, okay, here we have evildoers, but in saying that what they did was evil, we're not writing them off. We're not assuming that these people are beyond our moral reach or could never be reformed, could never become good people. Right? So they're evildoers who fall short of being evil people. So I think we ought to reserve the concept of an evil person for people who we really do have good evidence, good reason to believe are extreme wrongdoers or who are disposed towards that kind of extreme wrongdoing and who are beyond our reach, who we have no reasonable chance of reforming. So I set a pretty high bar for the concept of an evil person. And one of the things I'm trying to do here is explain the reticence that a lot of people have towards the use of the concept of evil. And you'll see this explicitly in philosophers like Philip Cole um, and historian Inga Clendinen, who are very sceptical of the concept of evil. I think we ought to just drop that language altogether. And most of what they're worried about, I think, is the idea that we should just be writing perpetrators off. I think that's a big mistake. Um, we should be holding open hope that we can reform or that people who perpetrate extreme wrongs can come to see the error of their ways and can, you know, reform themselves effectively. Um, so this, I think, we ought to take seriously. Um, and I think people often are way too quick to judge that a perpetrator of extreme wrongs is an evil person who ought to be written off. Right? So to that extent, I'm sympathetic to some of the sceptics 
about evil. And yet, I think there are some cases in which we've got good evidence that someone is not only really strongly disposed to perform these kind of horrific, extreme moral wrongs, but is also beyond our reach in terms of rational engagement, reform, and so on. And here I'm thinking of cases of people like the serial killer Ted Bundy, who was, given the evidence that we have, was set on this course. Now, I'm not here claiming that he was born evil. I'm agnostic as to the developmental flexibility that different people have. Um, It's very hard to gain the evidence in this case as, you know, if Ted Bundy had been raised differently, could he have turned out to be a good person? I think we we just don't know. Um, But there there are cases like the case of Ted Bundy in which we've got quite a lot of evidence about the the fixity of that person's character in a forwards-looking direction. We don't know whether he was born evil, but he gave us a lot of evidential support for the view that he's going to keep abducting and torturing and murdering his victims. And the evidence that he provided was he did it many times, he was imprisoned, he broke out of prison and went straight back to it. Kept going, right. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and he expressed no remorse. Um, he clearly was not emotionally distressed by what he was doing. Right. So all of this is evidence that I think strongly supports the conclusion that he's, he's beyond our reach. He's not someone who we could morally reform. Now, I want to be really clear here. I think we just don't have that evidence in the vast majority of cases of extreme wrongdoing, right? We don't know whether the perpetrator of an extreme wrong is beyond reform. And I think the morally appropriate attitude in many of those cases, in most of those cases, is to hold out hope for reform and to attempt reform. But I do think there are some perpetrators, and here I include some serial killers, And I think also some ideologically motivated war criminals where I think they've given us pretty good evidence that they are never going to change and that it would be unwise for us to think that we can, you know, sit them down, talk them through some moral philosophy, treat them nicely, and, you know, within a year or two they'll they'll suddenly be model citizens. So that's why I am cautious in relation to judgments that someone is an evil person. But I don't want to get rid of, I don't want to say that that concept just has no application at all. I think there are some cases where we've been given pretty clear evidence that someone is not just an evildoer, but an evil person. Someone's actions ought to receive our moral, our strongest moral condemnation. But also that person just ought to be locked up and we should give up hope of um, turning them around. Great. Um, and I guess it also has the virtue, as you were just pointing out, that um, uh, you still preserve, um, your account still preserves the ability to refer to particular actions or particular even patterns of activity as evil. Um, it just severs the what I think, I guess, is often seen as a conceptual tie um, or too tight a conceptual tie maybe between um, uh, evil doing and 
being an evil person. Is that right? That's right. And if you look at some of the really significant historical examples of 20th century examples, so we're not going way back in time, but um, say responses to the Holocaust, you'll see a lot of these thinkers deploying the concept of evil and condemning what happened. But none of them think that, oh, okay, every perpetrator here was beyond reform. Things could never have gone differently. Um, They don't think that the judgment that an action is evil is a way of just, say, ending a moral conversation or a way of, you know, throwing our hands up in the air and saying there's nothing that we could do. Um, They're using the concept of evil to strongly condemn actions while leaving those other questions open. And I think that's, that's the right attitude to take. Well, um, Luke, thank you so much uh, for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. It's been a real pleasure to talk about uh, your new book with you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion. Uh, Again, I've been talking to Luke Russell. His new book is out with Oxford University Press. It's titled Being Evil. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy. Bye for now.